Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. So good to be with you, not just because there's AC, but every time that I worship here, I'm just reminded that we get, it's just a taste of heaven every time. It is so fun. I'm honored to be here with you guys. So tonight, uh, we are gonna be in Philippians. So if you wanna go there in your Bible, we're gonna be in Philippians 4. Okay, and we're starting in verse eight. We're gonna be in Philippians four, eight, and nine. Read with me. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This, um, if you guys don't know, when this summer we've moved out of our worship series, and we're now in a new kind of a series, um, but it's a very, it's this time, we took it last summer too, where we step back and we hear from different leaders in the church, different people on our teaching team, just what they're learning, how God's feeding them, feeding the people on that. It's a really sweet way to get this vision for the church, this um, fullness together, and it's a very like intentional time. I love, I love this about summer. I love hearing what everyone is learning, where everyone is going, um, and getting to see how that impacts us as a church family. And that's kind of where we're at here in the summer. It's super exciting, and I'm honored to get to take a part in that. My teaching notes aren't opening, so we'll see what happens here. That's what I'm doing with all my clicking up here. But um, for this passage for me, when I was thinking about just where we were going to go this, um, this weekend, this Sunday, there, I went this weekend to Seattle, and I was in, um, we were driving up and down the five, you know, you see all the different billboards, all the different things. And I was just noticing as we're driving, I was like, there's so many different, so many different messages, so many different things. There's so many different, whether it's um, for politics or it's for a new product to buy or it's a promise of great shopping off this exit, whatever it is, every billboard had this different, this different promise, this different message that it was giving of what, of something that would be true. And I was just thinking, looking at the people driving around me, I was like, what do they think as they pass each of these? I was like, I know what I think as I go by each of these billboards, as I see each message, as I see each of these things, but I'm like, oh, that's kind of dumb. Or like, oh, we should pull over because Starbucks has something new for me. Something, and it, we each have a different way that we view every message that we see. And when we come to the scriptures, it's the same thing. And I came to this place in Philippians when I was doing, um, just reading with the Lord and reading through these things, these things that we should meditate on, these things that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to do, to sit and to think on these things. The very first word, whatever is true, it's like whatever is true, that question of what is true, 
I was thinking about those people driving by the billboards and I was thinking like, oh, they each have their own idea of what is true. If they were to each come and read just that section from Philippians and say, oh, what is true? Everyone would maybe have their own answer. The way that we answer this question is gonna influence how we define what follows, what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, etc. What's worthy of our praise, what we meditate on. And it may seem that for us, for Christians, the answer is super simple, right? What is true is the scriptures. You're right. But throughout history, we've seen wrongly interpreted scripture used to justify the exact opposite of the character of God, the opposite of the word of God, what the scriptures would speak. How one approaches scriptures, the way that we interpret, that interpretation is what we use to decide what is true. And this doesn't just happen with the scriptures. Think of these other words we're seeing in Philippians. So when I say true, what comes to your mind? Maybe it is the scriptures. We're at church. That would make a lot of sense. But maybe it's also things like, oh, there's our personal truth. There's science. There's technology. There's laws. There's moral truth. All these different kinds. When I say honor, maybe you think, oh, the, that traditional honor shame where you know human societies put this emphasis on defensive reputation. Or you think about how we talk about culture of honor at Saints Hill, which is we're saying that, oh, we're actually seeing the best in people. We're drawing out the gold in them. We're building big people. Or as Danny Silk would say, if you've ever read him, a culture of honor is an environment that sustains life, hope, honor, and destiny. Each person might have a different way they approach it. I went on just like Googling. I was like, ooh, lovely. What would pop up? So I just did a really simple image search of what comes up when you search lovely. And it came up with all these different images that I put into little, well, this isn't all of them, just a couple that I grabbed off the top. It should be on a slide. There it is. So when you search lovely, you get this and so much more. Like everyone has their own idea of what is lovely. I think that cat's name might just be lovely because that's probably like more of a fear thing going on there. But you just have all these different things that some of you might look at and be like, oh yeah, that, that, I get that, ugh, not that. We each have a different idea of what is lovely. We have pre-existing thought patterns, preferences that would lead us to say true or false to the question, what is lovely, when we look at each of those images. Those examples, you can pull that guide down, are just a few examples of what, what it looks like what we, when we bring to the table what we already think what we've already supposed to be true, what we prefer, and then we make our definitions. We conclude meaning. And we often do that same thing when we approach the scriptures. When we approach God, we come to the scriptures to what they say about life, sin, who God is, and we judge each statement with our own truth criteria. Truth criteria is the criteria that we use to judge the truth or the falsity of a statement. And our criteria that we have matters. Because the great tendency of the human heart is to be the one that judges. That we would be enlightened people who are able to intake information and using an interval compass, we decide what is true and what is false. That it's study and experience and laws of the universe that decide what is true. And in part that sounds good, but is that the way? Is it our experience, even our combined experience, the foundations we've built in our mind to guard us against falsity, is that the best way to decide what is true or not? There's a theologian named Douglas Campbell, and he wrote an essay where he quotes Karl Barth, and something that he says about um, the way that this can move the church in the modern era if we're not careful. Barth saw with prophetic clarity that modernity has, had been led astray by believing that the establishment of the truth or falsity of statements about God rested ultimately in the hands of humanity. 
who developed their most basic truth criteria for themselves and then judged statements about God to be true or false in their light. That's the danger that we face when we live in any culture, any time, that we would take that time and culture along with the challenges faced there, our experiences there, and use our surroundings, our experiences, and create a true criteria for ourselves by which we judge God. To judge God can seem like really strong language, but we see it happen all the time, that God is put on the stand for what he calls sin, for what he calls right and wrong, for what he says about heaven and hell, what he says about what the good life is, what Alex talked about last week. And as those that follow Jesus, we have to see that we have these criteria ourselves. We have things that we've taken from culture, from our experience that we use to determine what is true. And we filter, we come to the scriptures and we filter what God has said through that rather than filtering us through the scriptures. When we construct our own foundations for evaluating God, we do so to our peril. This is something people have called theological foundationalism. It means that we construct a theology based on our already established foundations and we make decisions about God, what he's like. But how can we know what is true? How can we come in this room from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, thinking so many different things and say, oh no, this is what is true? Isn't it necessary that we use these pre-existing foundations? Because where, where else can we come from? What other starting point do we have? In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We know what is true about God, about the scriptures, about life, because we've seen the revelation of Jesus. Everything is judged by him, by the revelation of God himself. You might have heard it said here before that Jesus is perfect theology. It is in Jesus that the character and intentions of God is brought to light. Jesus, as God, is revealing God himself to the world. Say that again. Jesus, as God, is revealing God himself to the world, to us. There was another observation in that same essay that I read that I think was important. It says, when the starting point for the Christian truth that is the revelation of Jesus Christ is abandoned, the church loses its way. It becomes incapable of distinguishing between God's commands and commands arising from its own culture. And evil exploits this confusion, resulting in complicity, in oppression, and violence. The simple gospel matters. Jesus being the starting point of truth matters. It matters for the church, the people of God, that Jesus is our only starting point. That the revelation of God in his son is our truth criteria. That's what we come with. That's the foundation that we bring and say, okay, everything else build it on this. It is through the revelation of King Jesus that we put our existing foundations up to the test and submit to his authority. It's Jesus who teaches us how to see God's intention and character. He's who teaches us about sin, the meaning of life. So we come back to Philippians and say, how do we know what to meditate on? What is worthy of praise? What is lovely? What is good? It's a person. It's Jesus. The person of Jesus by who all truth is defined. We cannot use our criteria to arrive at Jesus. It has to work the other way around or we'll create an idol that we can't get away from. It's a relationship with the Savior. Truth without love, truth without relationship is nothing, and there's no truth without him. I heard a, a helpful metaphor kind of in regards to this. Um, and it was talking about, so say that your car breaks down, right, and you get a flat tire. You're like, okay, I see the problem, I have this flat tire, and I need to fix it. So you call the tow company or whoever to come fix your tire, they come fix your tire. And you're like, okay, the solution was the tow company to fix my problem, the car tire. I discovered my problem, and then I found the solution. Alternatively, 
You could have the same scenario where you have the flat tire, tow company still comes, but they say, oh, you have a flat tire, but it's because there's a nail in your tire. And you actually have a nail in that tire, so that tire is gonna go flat too. And you're like, oh, oh, I've been parking by the shed that has all my tools. There must be nails that I've been driving over when I go to park. So you actually, it's the solution has to arrive first to show you what the real problem is. The solution had to come to show you actually the problem isn't at all what you thought that it was. And that is what Jesus does. He comes, he's the solution, and we have to start with him to see what the truth is, what the real problem is. To answer big questions about life, what it means to be human, we have to start with him. We can never know what the true problem is or truth outside of him. If our desire is for Jesus and we just come with what we think the problem is and we say, oh Jesus, we want you to be the solution, we create him to be a solution, just the solution we want him to be. You create and you deceive yourself. And as Barr said in that quote, it's this scenario that the church becomes complicit and confused, lacking in power and moving outside God's intentions. To lay down our pride and see first Jesus, to let him define the problem first and then show himself as a solution, we then let him define the purpose of life. In Mark 5, two through eight, there's a story you guys have probably heard um, and it's about the man with an impure spirit. I'll read through Mark 5, two through eight. It'll be up on the screen too. It says, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of the, his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. And the rest of the story, Jesus cast the demons into the swine. He sets this man free. So what was the problem that we saw in this passage? Well, the people saw a problem being a man. They bound him, they tried to keep him contained. They said, oh, this is a disturbance that we need to keep ourselves safe from. But Jesus saw the actual problem and he saw a man that needed to be set free. What actually needed to happen was demons needed to be cast out of this man, he needed to know Jesus. Jesus, the solution, was able to expose the real problem. There's another story that I think shows this really well. It's in John 8, 3, um, another pretty familiar story. It's the woman caught in adultery. This verse says, as he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I, go and sin no more. Those leaders saw the problem as an impure woman, someone they needed to get rid of to protect their society, to protect their families, to protect their idea of pure. They also saw a problem with Jesus and they wanted to be rid of him. Jesus saw people of pride who needed rebuke and a woman who needed to know love, to know him and his presence. 
There are so many stories from the life of Jesus in the scriptures that challenge what we think is true with a better idea of what is true because only the solution can tell you what the actual problem is. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. Much of what we would learn from our experience from the world around us would say that the flesh is to be satisfied, our desires are to be fulfilled, there is joy in building something for yourself. But if we would start with Jesus, we would see joy is found in him alone. We would see that what culture pushes is a lie when we start with him. John 15, 10 says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus would say full joy does not come from fulfilling your desires or taking pride in life's accomplishments, but it comes from obedience, from abiding in joy himself, that regardless of your status, he has loved you and given you joy. Jesus stands to say that the real problem is not the systems that you live in, it's not the people you don't like, it's not the politician that you disagree with, the problem is sin. Sin is the problem that he came to remedy and it is sin that inhibits people from loving as he loves. The solution Jesus came to illuminate that problem, came to say, I'm the solution because there is sin in the world that I need to destroy. To expose the desires of the flesh that they are what keep us from him, that keep us from relationship. And to show us that we can walk in the spirit, rid of whatever he, what he never intended for us to carry. Only he can do away with that. Only the solution can do away with that. And it is by the work of the finished cross that we have that hope, that we have hope and true life and joy. True life is only found in what we call the gospel or the good news, that Jesus came as a solution to the problem that maybe we didn't even know that we had, but that we created. We consumed ourselves. We tried to figure out how to, how to make ourselves prosperous, to be proud. We chose to trust ourselves over him. That's the Garden of Eden, right? Is choosing like, oh, actually, I know truth better. I know the better way than Jesus. And Jesus comes in and says, even though you chose that way, I will come and I'll reveal myself to the world. I'll reveal what truth looks like, walking, living, breathing truth and love. And I will walk with the Holy Spirit in such a way that hell will shudder at the relationship that happens when man is fully submitted to God, fully submitted to the Spirit. Jesus showed us how to do that. And he wanted relationship with his people so much. He wanted you to be able to live that same life so much that he gave himself away, that he sacrificed himself, that he died but he didn't just die, he came back, he resurrected. Yeah. And it is that resurrection life that is the hope for us today that we get to say, oh, resurrection is a new kind of truth. There's a new reality at play. There's a new reality that I live in, that you live in, and it's one that Jesus said. It's one that he said. That heaven is available now. We actually can know truth. Yeah. The end is decided. And Jesus reveals the, char the character of God, the likeness of God. He reveals God to us, giving the Holy Spirit to live in us, through us. This is what we're invited into. That is the problem that was destroyed. Sin was destroyed so that we can live in and with the solution, Jesus. The gospel, the revelation of Jesus, that revelation of Jesus has to be our starting place. When we come to the scriptures, when we come to the world and we're saying, how do I know what is true? We have to start there. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul writes to the people in Rome. He talks about the weak and the strong. I have just a little snippet of that scripture that I wanna walk through. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. 
We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those whose insults you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. When Paul's talking about the weak here, he's actually talking about the Jewish people who know the gospel, they know this true story, but they still wanna hold to the food laws. They still wanna hold to circumcision. They still wanna hold to the old things that make them feel like they have worth in that world. And what Paul is saying, he's saying it doesn't discount them from the gospel, but what the strong do, the strong are those people that Paul includes himself with that say, I don't need to add anything to the finished work of Jesus. I don't need to add a law, I don't need to add an extra. What Jesus did is enough. And the reason this is important is because the scriptures would tell us that strength is found is putting your full assurance in the gospel. That weakness is to think that the gospel is not enough, that we have to add to it. And we see this in the, in the church in America, right? And probably everywhere. I just know the American one a little better. That they have, it's the same struggles with that the Jewish people had to obedience to the law. It's this tendency to add to the gospel. That there has to be something more, a social gospel, a relevant gospel, a universal gospel, etc. But we need the gospel, period. The person of Jesus, period. And we cannot add to it because in trying to add to it, we take away from it. We take away from the power of who Jesus says that he is and what is available to you by saying that, oh, I have something more that I could give to that. We don't. He gave it all so that we can walk in that freedom. Jesus is the truth and he does not need our adjectives. He simply asks for fully devoted lives. So there's questions we can ask, I think a couple, as we come to the scriptures, as we come to Jesus so that we know, like, that we can sift through as we're looking to set aside our truth criteria because Jesus, we want him to be our truth criteria. The first one is that question. Am I adding or taking away from the gospel? Starting with Jesus and letting all things fall under his authority means I trust the message of the simple gospel, that the gospel is the solution that defines the world's problems and I do not look outside of it for what is going wrong. I look to him for what is going wrong and how he has made it right. I don't add or take away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing to ask yourself when you come to the scriptures is, am I squirming rather than submitting? I think often we come to the scriptures, we come to Jesus and he just isn't what we wanted to see. He isn't what we wanted to be true. And so we kind of like do the squirm, the theological squirm to be like, oh, actually it could be this. And we turn, we turn ourselves into God by saying like, actually if you, Maybe that's clear to some people, but I'm pretty enlightened and figured out that that's actually not true, and Jesus is actually giving me permission to be whoever I wanna be. But that's not what the scriptures do. The scriptures free us by saying you can submit to the Lord. You can submit to the God of the universe, creator of the world, you don't have to, don't have to do the squirm. You get to just trust him. And that kind of truth, it requires a response. It says, well, I acknowledge this revelation, will I acknowledge Jesus, and will I come under the authority of his truth? Will I submit? And this isn't even unique to just life in Jesus for us. We all submit to some type of revealed truth. Those who hold claims of truth are those who hold authority. Those that can promise you a future, that can reveal a solution to a problem, they're the ones to follow. For many today, um, it's the self. It's like, oh, the only one who can really know my truth is me, so I will submit to my desires, I will submit to my flesh, I will submit to what I want because I know what is true for me. And you deceive yourself. Submission is wrongly, that is a submission to a wrongly placed authority. 
We see this with governments all throughout history, right? We see someone who can give us a solution, an authority that can offer you the good life, and you say, okay, I will watch you, I will do what you say, because everything you say must be true if you can promise me that. And we misplace authority. Or maybe it's social influence. It's that person that you follow on Instagram, and you're like, your life looks so good, and I want that life. And so whatever you say is true must be true, because I wanna look like you. It's wrongly placed authority. I'm not saying there are not other people in your lives that you'll submit to. The scriptures speak of submission to government in Romans 13, submission to marriage, Ephesians 5, and more. But what is crucial for us, if we call ourselves a believer in Jesus, is that God is the authority in my life. He's teaching me how to submit to him first, how to submit to him alone, and then in relationship to others. It is a submission of love. It is a submission of freedom. Submission is not a dirty word. It is a freeing word. It is a word that lets us live the life he has designed us for as we submit to his authority. The third thing um, that we can ask ourselves as we approach the scriptures, we wanna see what is true, is am I seeing my experience first or Jesus first? Our experience, or experience can be a really big influence in what we think, um, the way we address the problems of mankind, of the world around us, because that's what we've felt, right? That's what we've seen. We use our experience to decide where true hurt lies. And your experience does matter. God sees each experience and walks alongside us. But experience can't be our starting point for truth. Experience cannot be the place that I come from to decide what is true about God. Instead, as real as our experiences are, and as much as God sees and cares, they cannot define my reality. Jesus must define my reality. And thank goodness that Jesus does define reality because his kingdom says death is defeated and heaven is right now. And I'm not saying that if we go through those questions, use those filters, I think those are, those are helpful for me as I come to the scriptures. But it's not gonna mean that we all come to the same interpretations all the time when we study the Bible. There's still gonna be gray areas in the scripture, there's still gonna be place to disagree, to walk with Jesus, ask him questions. But the point is that we approach the scriptures first in relationship. That we approach the scriptures in love and we approach him as authority. Not coming as the authority trying to manipulate God with our agenda. And where the scriptures are clear, we try not to muddy them, but we submit to the one that we love. And when truth is revealed, we're changed by it. And that's the question, right? What do we do with truth? Okay, I can see this idea. I see who God is. I see the gospel. But what do, what do I do now? Because we are, we trust in the simple gospel. We submit to God's authority. We submit to his reality. And we say, Jesus, you are the truth criteria for my life. But what happens is we have to let that truth move from our head to out. <laughs> it has to go out from us. It's not an ethereal thing. It doesn't just stay up in our minds. Repentance is a mind change. I change and I align with God. I say, yes, you are the truth of my life. But revealed truth can't stop there. Real truth isn't only for debates or theologians or scholars or philosophers. Real truth changes the world. It changes the world around you as you believe it. And here at Saints Hill, I think we've seen this over the last few years that we've been a church, that people's minds have been changed, molded, identities realized, like, I know who I am. I believe who he says I am. I've been able to cast off sin, change the way I do relationships. I believe what he says is true about me. And it's so beautiful and so good. But that battle cannot stop in our minds because truth has to go beyond us. A true transformation of the mind will always result in transformation of the world around. And that's where I believe God is taking us right now. We're seeing the first fruits of this. We're seeing testimony after testimony of healing, of God moving, of people coming to know the Lord. But it can't stop with just the few. 
as we're all having our minds change, as we're all realizing our identity, it has to go beyond us. The scriptures say that we share in his resurrection and in his crucifixion. So if we stand here today and we say we share in the resurrected power of Christ, we also say I count my life as nothing for the goodness of his gospel. That the people of God are a people of joyful sacrifice. So what does that look like? When you see him, when you see the revelation of Jesus, he's inviting you to something. He's inviting you to life with him. And for each of us, that will look different. But for each of us, it will be its own joy and its own sacrifice to come under the lordship of Jesus. That we count it joy that the truth of the gospel be known. That fear would not hold us back from being able to not only say nothing is impossible, but to go out there and to do the impossible with Jesus. We want to experience what it's like to be with King Jesus in life. That, I know for me, sometimes it's easy to live, live up here. I'll have the truth of God. I'll have really great conversations with people about who he is, what he's like. And then I'll go home and on my way, I'll see someone. Lord's like, oh, like, pray for that person. And I have that piece of me that goes, oh, but can, God, can you really? God, can you really be that good? And sometimes my answer is, I don't think you can because I keep walking. I let my experience and the lies that my experience has taught me before overturn what I know to be true about life with Jesus. But then, I remember the testimonies he's done in my life. I hear the testimonies in this house. I come in, in pre-gathering prayer, I walk in and Barbie's telling a testimony. I'm just like, oh my gosh. This is the things that the Lord does. He heals people. He brings them to himself. The things that we say, oh, he can do whatever he wants. We come in this house. Guys, worship earlier. We're worshiping the name of King Jesus. He, there is nothing that he can't do. There is no place that is too far for him to go. And when I see those testimonies, I see the back healed, the cancer leave the body, or the stories of someone coming to have their mind changed. That is a miracle. To change and live in his reality, it is a miracle. And so that is what gets hunger in me again. Hunger to go beyond my head. Because I'm like, if it just stays in my head, it doesn't mean anything. For me, yeah, I get my identity changed. But what about the world? We're called to the world I come to Jesus and I lay down my reputation, my desire for comfort, whatever life I've built in my head, I lay it down and I say, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. So we go back to Philippians. That question, what is true? I can only know it fully in Jesus. What is noble? I can only know it in Jesus. What is right? Only in Jesus. What is pure? It's only in Jesus. What is lovely? only in Jesus. What is admirable, only in Jesus. What is praiseworthy, it's only in Jesus. I will let my mind be transformed by him. I will define sin by his definitions, that Jesus is my truth criteria. Jesus is my starting point. Jesus is where all of life, all of joy, anything that I could ever imagine, it flows from him. I will put truth into practice and live alive to the spirit awake to reality with Jesus. And for each person in here, there's something that he wants to stir in us in this season. He wants to stir in you that we would wake up and it would go from the reality, from that identity that we hold in our heart, even in our head, and we go out with it. Because there's more for us. It's until there's so much more for us that he's inviting us to. And so to close tonight, I wanna just partake um, in communion together. Worship team, you can come up. Thanks for listening. 
And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And the yoke is so much easier when I'm found.